No more clickbait, no more sound bites, and no more videos that are over before you blink. No more being told to click this or to share that because some people think you can't think. Choose a new way of doing things. Choose real people. Choose real stories. Choose the Real Talks podcast. Niall McNamee burst on to the inter-county scene as a 17-year-old back in 2003 when he made his senior championship debut the week before his leaving cert began. Since then, he has become Offaly's talisman, missing just one championship game over 14 campaigns. But while Niall has been a beacon of consistency on the field, a large portion of his football career was spent battling a chronic gambling addiction. In 2012, the road club man publicly admitted he owed around €80,000 accepted that he needed professional help and so began his journey towards recovery. It's now five years since Niall has made a bet and his life has been transformed. We sat down to chat about the many lessons that he has learned along the way and what it's like to be able to look at himself in the mirror now and be proud of what he sees because for many years he couldn't and gambling became his form of escapism from everyday life. We've now had over 9,000 listens to the podcast and I've no doubt many more will relate to this episode in particular. This show was brought to you thanks to the support of Kelly Bradshaw Dalton, who for over 20 years have been successfully selling, renting and managing property in the greater Dublin area. You can check out their website at kbd.ie for all your property needs. My name is Alan O'Mara and you are listening to the fifth episode of the Real Talks podcast. And now here's the star, Niall McNamee into Hill 16. What a fabulous start, 20 seconds on the watch. He has been their scoring sensation. He is ice cool. And what an opening for Offaly and their young corner forward. Again, they persist with the two-man full forward line. There's four Dublin defenders back there. But somehow McNamee has it. McNamee has to go for goal. And will he go for the point? Here's Thomas Dehan. McNamee again! It's a point. Niall McNamee brings them back to within three. They've done well to get this close. We've had a couple of great guests on over the last number of weeks with some really different perspectives and takes on life. And Niall, I want to start with you and go all the way back to 2003. Because for me, you're one of the first boy wonders. I remember bursting onto the scene. You made your championship debut against Leash in 2003 at just 17 while doing the leave and search. Is that right? Yep. Um, so that's something that doesn't... We don't see it too often happen anymore. I think the other one that jumps out in my mind is sort of Patrick McBurty and there was Austin Gleeson, but there's definitely fewer and fewer of you as the game develops. I suppose going back to that time, you're still in school, a young gun bursting onto the scene. And the question I have around that would just be, were you living the dream at that stage? Um, yeah, I think I probably was. Um, I remember we actually played Leash, it was a Sunday, and I played with the Alton Miners the week before. Though the same management team would have been over the under-21 team that was over the senior team so I played under-21 that year so the lads would have kind of known me up to that point anyway um, but we played I'd never trained with the senior team and the the minors were beaten with, in the first round of the minor championship loud beats on a Saturday and the secretary of the county board came up to me after the game and said you have to go senior training in the morning which was a Sunday morning so I went the following morning trained and then started the following weekend um, which was geez, I think it was about 10 days before the leaving start started um, okay so it was uh, it was a strange one, but then we drew with Leash and we played the replay. Then it was a bank holiday Monday, and then 
I actually started the Leaving Cert then on the Wednesday. So yeah, it was like it was just something. It was a, it was something I always wanted to do was play for Offaly, and um, that was my my main target really when I was probably an early teenager. So to actually be able to do it so young and um, play senior in the county football was uh, was a uh, was a big achievement for me. Looking back, it was probably like it may have been the wrong thing for not necessarily for me, but just you know it probably wasn't the right thing to happen. Like there was probably a lot of players there that were able to step in, but um, I was like in terms of. Ability wise, I was well able to mm-hmm. to mind myself and to, to play, but uh, it was uh, it was a strange one, and it probably doesn't happen, and it probably won't happen um, as much in the future. But uh, as I said, it was kind of something that I had always wanted to do, and probably to do it back then was uh, was very special, I suppose. What was that like as a seventy year old? Basically, and I don't think there's any other way of describing it as just being thrown in the deep end. Like, um, like was it a bit of a whirlwind or? Yeah. What was that like? It was, um, well I know leading into the game, so we used to train on a Tuesday and Thursday and on a Thursday night the team was named and Vinny Claffey, who was, just, I think Vinny was 37 back then, was actually named to start. And, um, but he'd already known that night that when the team was named that he actually wasn't starting. He was the only one that knew outside the management mm-hmm. team that I actually was going to start. Okay. So it wasn't until the Sunday morning that they told me uh, we'd a meeting in Tullamore before we went to Port Leash. Oh, that, so they didn't even tell you at that no, stage? No, no. They told me on the Sunday morning um, that uh, that it was starting. And it was brilliant because um, I didn't have any time to think about sure. it. Sure. It was so literally just... Go play ball. Yeah, exactly. In you go. Um, but I think I brought the average age of the team down to about <laughs> from about 29 to about 21, I'd say, in, in, in one, one change. Yeah. Uh, but um, so yeah, it was just kind of in we go, like, and I had no time to think about. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember sitting on the bus going to the match, and I texted one or two people um, just to let them know that I was starting. But that was all, and uh, played for the first whatever it was fifty minutes. I think I was taken off after about fifty minutes, scored a point. Um, but it's amazing when you're playing like all of been thrown into the deep end. It's inter county football and at senior level is like nothing I'd ever experienced before. And I remember in the first half actually thinking I was going to have a heart attack. I was just running and running and running and the boys, like the management team, had this kind of a thing of uh, the full forward makes the first run and then I was to make the second run. So wherever he went, I was to go the opposite direction basically to okay. create space or whatever. And like being young and naive and different things, I just ran. Ran. Yeah, just would not stop running. And uh, I was absolutely out of my feet by half time. But uh, I came off after about 50 minutes, I think 55 minutes. And Vinnie Claffey came on for me. So again, the average age of the team went up again. <laughs> but uh, it was brilliant. Like I remember coming off and... Uh, Got a huge reception coming off that day, and uh, but even looking back, and even still, I'd be saying, "Geez, I could have kicked another point here or there, like scored a point, but did okay for my debut." But um, yeah, it was huge. Like it was something that I'd never been exposed to before in terms of, um, I suppose, from a even from a supporter point of view, people coming up to you after the game and congratulating you and things like that it was something that I wasn't really that used to. So look, I'm not going to say it wasn't nice. It was because people come up and congratulate you and stuff like that. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it was uh, it was definitely an experience. I was just I was going to ask you what was the attention like around that time for you? Obviously, like Offaly is a fairly small county, I imagine it's a fairly close knit GA community and following as well. Mm. Like a certain amount of uh, there must have been a bit of limelight or a bit of attention, folks. I'm not in yet. It's been thrown in there like that as a as a young gun, was there? Yeah, definitely. And I remember when we went back. I'm kind of the hotel. We went back to after the game, but uh, a lot of supporters were there and a lot of people coming up and congratulating you. And a lot of supporters actually coming up and giving me advice on what I should have done and what I didn't do right did, and all yeah. this kind of stuff. <laughs> but it's funny because back when you're only that age and you're young and I suppose a bit naive, you kind of take this stuff on board and say, oh yeah, that's like, like the person may have never played Take football the in their like, life, like, sure. and yet you're there going, oh yeah, yeah, this, you may have a point there, like, that if that was the case now, I just, I, this just wouldn't happen, I'd, 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 uh, no I'd, water horse, exactly, <laughs> I'd, know, I'd know exactly where to go and, and who to talk to and who not to talk to, but um, I was kind of taking all this on board, but I remember we went out that night after the game, which probably would be a little bit unheard of even now, because it was only, I think, eight days to the replay, and um, we had a good night, like, I wouldn't, and you had no idea, 
I had no idea. Yeah, <laughs> honestly, I never thought of that. And I'd, um, I'd, uh, I wouldn't have been a big drinker back then. I wouldn't be a big drinker anyway. But uh, I remember going out and having a few drinks in Tullamore and a lot of people coming up and saying well done and different things. And it just felt nice, like. Um, but I remember getting a taxi home that evening and the taxi driver was driving all the way back to road. It was like about half an hour, like. And I remember I stopped in my, I was staying in my girlfriend's house at the time. But we stopped in my house at home because I knew my mother had recorded the game because I wanted to go home and look at it. So this is about three o'clock in the morning. So we took the, the not not the DVD, it was the, the video. video out of the cassette player and brought it home. And uh, it was about half four in the morning, we, I threw it on in her house and watched the first half and whatever it was the second half that I was playing just to see how, how it went or how it got on, but, uh, which was nice as well. But um, the taxi driver then asked me for my autograph getting out of the car as well. And as a 17 year old now, yeah. going back into school the next day, like, well, I should only be in school with a week off because the leaving start was starting to follow me. But it was all just a bit surreal. Like, that's you've been transformed to sort of a different world very quickly. Completely, yeah, yeah. definitely. I've seen you burst onto the scene as this, this spring chicken coming in, yeah. being a really consistent forward with awfully over a number of years. You were in the Leicester final in 2006, wasn't it? And I'm yeah. just sitting watching, I was on the way home from a game, and that game was on in the bars, we were eating food, we were watching that game and going to say the international rules. And then I suppose jumping into 2012. And I would have mentioned this in, in an earlier episode that we did with Kevin McMenamin. I was going through a really difficult time around that stage. So I, I was consumed by depression, really lost, really struggling. And at that stage, I just reached out to the Gaelic Players Association for help and support. I knew I needed, I knew I needed some guidance and I'd sort of, I, I'd lost my way. And making that call, I remember shaking with anxiety, panicking over, who am I? You know, and you have to say your name, your county and what's wrong. And it was, I was embarrassed and I felt weak about it. But a week later, I'm on my way home from college and I go in and I buy me classic chicken fillet roll because that's what you do when you're a student. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you didn't, I did. <laughs> but uh, so I get home reading the paper and I just spread with you. And I can't even begin to describe how much it helped me. I remember I had to stop halfway, I had to stop halfway through it to be like, holy Jesus. <laughs> um, and I said to one of the lads, I was like, yeah, like you, you need to read this. Like, and I picked it up again and I read it. Because um, I suppose come back to, to my perspective where I was thinking was uh, I was like, okay, I'm not the only person that's, that's going through some stuff here. Because it was particularly the athlete and the identity part of that. It was like, you can't really ask for help. You've got to be a man and put your chest mm-hmm. out. Um, and just reading that piece in terms of you admitting that you'd been struggling and admitting vulnerabilities, I think, was a huge thing for me. Because I didn't think that was, I really didn't think that was allowed at that stage still. And I was only, I was still only 20, like, um. So I, first of all, I'd like, like to thank you for that piece because it was a really, really helpful and beneficial thing for me as a young man in that position. Mm. And I suppose just for anyone listening that's wondering what the hell I'm talking about, <laughs> you might just um, you might just give a brief overview of what what you did that day in, in terms of that article and, and, and why. Yeah, I suppose. So leading into it, in November in 2011, I would have went to the Rutland Centre in Dublin. It's a, it's a treatment centre for addiction. Um, I went there for obviously a gambling addiction that I would have had um, Jesus would have been for six or seven years, I'd imagine. Um, and the walls kind of came in around me in terms of um, borrowing money and people asking what was going on and not being in good form and just being generally, you know, struggling along and people kind of seeing the signs but no one really knowing what was happening. Um, so it led into me going into the Rutland Centre, which was the 23rd of November in 2011. Um, when you're into county football or sometimes, and where I'm from, you know, in Road in, in County Offaly, it's a small place. Um, if you go missing for five weeks, people start to ask questions like, where's this guy gone? Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of leading into it, um, I had about a week or 10 days before I went in. I knew I was going in, I suppose. And we had our club AGM in the first week in December, I think. So before I actually went in for treatment, I wrote a letter um, 
that was read out at the AGM okay. for people to actually know just where I was going or where I was gone, I suppose. Why did you do that? I don't really know. I suppose one of the councillors in the Rutland Centre at the time was Jerry Cooney. Jerry actually was the Offaly football manager at the time. And um, we had a conversation around it and uh, it was basically me for probably the first time in a long time, like five, six years, really actually opening up and saying, okay, well, this, there's something actually wrong here and I need a bit of help or I'm going to get help and actually to embrace it and sort of actually hiding it because I hid so much in terms sure. of my gambling. So this is probably the first step for me to say, well, you know, I'm not perfect or there, there is stuff going on here and um, I suppose the AGM was a safe environment from a point of view of, you know, there are people that I know, there are people, place where I'm from, um, and, you know, I just kind of gave them a better sense of who I was because they would have seen me probably as an intercounty footballer. That's basically all it would have mm. been. And I would have tried to put on a show to all those people that, Jesus, everything's great. Um, I'm in a job that I like. I have a nice car or I have a nice house and all this kind of stuff. And it was all just a pure show, basically. Right. Um, so that was read out. Um, so obviously once that was read out, people talk and it would have started circulating around that I was getting in here. Bef were, were people talking before that was read out? Was oh, there yeah. rumours there or was there suspicions that something was going on? Yeah, absolutely. I think, like, I used to work in Tullamore for a couple of years previous to that and I'd often be in and out with the bookies um, in between on lunch breaks or even when I should have been in work. Um, people would have known that I was gambling. Um, obviously, when, some, when you're seen in the bookies a lot, mm -hmm. um, people can start putting two two together to say he's losing money or he's winning money or he's a gambling problem or he doesn't. So I knew all that talk would be going around. I probably never really uh, appreciated it too much or focused on it too much because obviously when I was in my gambling... Uh, state that's all I really cared about but um, obviously people would have had an inkling that there was something was wrong so this kind of just put that to bed basically to say this is what's after happened so then I suppose when I came out with treatment centre which was the 28th of December um, there was still a bit of unanswered stuff um, and I spoke to Jerry and me and Jerry have been very close over the last number of years and um, he actually gave me a bit of advice which was something that uh, it was a bit of an odd one but it was something that I was able to take on board was do you remember when Wayne Rooney got a hair transplant <laughs> Right, so when only got this hair transplant, and Jerry started explaining this to me, and I was going, "What is he talking about?" But basically, when only got a hair transplant, took a photograph of himself yeah. after getting the hair transplant, and put it out on Twitter, and then it just stopped everyone saying, "Did when only get a hair transplant? Did he not get it?" He okay. basically said, "I got a hair transplant." So set the record straight. Deal with it, like so. After a day, people just stopped talking about it. Mm. So he said, "Why not do that?" Um, so I said, "Yeah, fair enough." So obviously, a couple of rumors going around. People saying this, I owe this, or I did mm -hmm. this, or whatever. So um, we spoke to Liam Kelly in the Irish Independent. Um, Liam would have been friendly enough with Jerry, so we sat down in Johnstown House, over in in um, Johnstown Bridge in Clare, and it was good. Jerry came along with me, and we basically sat down and did an interview with Liam in terms of the gambling and you know what happened and where it brought me and things like that. But we were kind of safe as well to make sure that I wasn't saying anything mm -hmm. that I wasn't comfortable saying because at this stage it was very early recovery as well. So we did the article and I'm not sure what day it was. I think it would have been a Monday that it was actually published. And I remember being at home because I was living at home with my mother at the time. And she burst into the room maybe at half eight that morning and it was white as a ghost. And I like, she was listening to Midlands Radio 3, which would be the, the local radio station. She said, like, they're talking about you all morning on the radio. Like, what the hell is going on here? Like, and had you told her you were doing the piece? I had told yeah. her, yeah, but I, I wasn't expecting, I don't know, okay. for whatever reason, the naivety within me was supposed to follow on media. Yeah, yeah. I, wasn't, I wasn't expecting that. And I looked at my phone then and I had a load of missed calls mm -hmm. from the radio station and from different people. So um, it was sort of a bit, but me and Jerry kind of spoke about this, that this was kind of going to happen to a point. So just to say, look, I'm stating what's after happening where I was. 
but and now I'm drawing the line underneath yeah. it and I'm going back to look after myself in terms of my own recovery and uh, my own life so I'm just not going to do any more thing any more about it which was great because it sure, meant yeah. the radio station rang me that morning I answered the phone said now would you mind coming on I said actually do you know what this is all I'm doing yeah. and she, um, Sinead one of the girls in the middle of Radio 3 best, he said look we're getting a load of emails a load of text messages t- uh, tweets whatever it is um, just wishing you the best and we just wanted to tell you and I said look that's really I really appreciate that and that was kind of it um, so I suppose that was kind of the reason why um, and even when I look back in that article now not that I say I cringe when I see it but some of the stuff I say and I said and I would have I'd never say that now like but that's just it's very raw at the time. Exactly. And that's what exactly. that's what people would have related to. Yeah, that's very, what come, yeah, that's what comes across. I read I read the full piece again last night and even obviously I know you well now. Yeah. And even as I was reading it was like this is it's you're you're still in it, I think. You're not you're not through it. No. You're you're on the way out of it, you're navigating it. Yeah. But would it be fair to say that you were still in it? Like, yeah, definitely. It was just like this was literally just a bleh, yeah. Just get off it all, chest. Yeah, just get it all out, and that's is what it is. So it probably doesn't come across polished or doesn't come across rehearsed. It's just this is what it is, <laughs> and I suppose it's everything that I would have learned in the Rutland Centre. Just me rehashing what I've learned, and uh, I think that comes across in the article. Yeah, definitely. Just as I think we'll start exploring that that process a little bit more, if you don't mind. Mm. Um, but just taking back or taking stock in, in terms of gambling, and, and I suppose how it entered your life or, or, or where that came from was it always problematic um it's funny because in the last couple of years I, I speak to a lot of people that are struggling with gambling um and the one underlying theme that I found with most people is that in their early days when they started to gamble they won and they won big on some occasions and I think that planted a seed in both their heads and definitely my head to say she's you know what this could be a way for me to actually make money here you know, I would have been in college, like a lot of people that are 17, 18, starting in college, wouldn't have a whole lot of money. Um, and I suppose a bookies opened up in, in Road, where I'm from, when I was about 17 or 18, and I used to work part-time in the pub as well. And it just seemed like a bit of fun. Like, mm. lads would be coming in, having a few pints on a Saturday, having a few bets, laughing. These two things go hand in hand. Yeah, I was going, Jesus, this looks like a bit of crack. So I used to go to the bookies on a Saturday, I'd have 50 euros in my pocket, and I'd just start having a few bets, five euro on a horse, or five euro each way. And more often than not, I'd say in the first year maybe six months like I won nearly every Saturday when I went to the bookies but it's bet small sort of winning but it's, it's big, it could have been big for you at the time but in the grand scheme of things it's yeah. nice and yeah, it's it was, just, it, was, it was a hobby like it was yeah. something that I was like it didn't take over my whole life sure. but over a very short period of time I think well within probably a year like a Saturday went from doing a Saturday to a Saturday and a Sunday then when I was going into college in UCD it was like right I should I go into the bookies on a Monday Tuesday just to pop in and eventually then over like probably 18 months to two years it just became like the money probably, the financial thing wasn't an issue in terms of I wasn't under pressure or I wasn't um, borrowing money or I wasn't in big debt, but I just knew myself that I was doing this more than I should be doing it. But like my mind was telling me, you know, like you've won money, like you're you're well capable of actually coming in here winning a large sum of money and going off and buying yourself whatever you want to do. Um, and that was happening very, very regularly in the early stages. But I suppose over time, and I had a very, very big win around 2007. I remember I came back from Australia in 2007. I did a 20 euro treble in the bookies in Abbey Street and I won 2,800 euro. And I think from that day on, that was the day when I went, like putting a fiver on horses and not doing mm-hmm. it for me anymore. It had to be, la- in order for me to win big, I had that's to be when it's gone up a notch. Yeah, I had to be betting big. In order for me to win that amount of money again, I need to be betting in larger sums of money. And that's probably when it got a bit out of control. I was, um, uh, that was, sorry, no, that was 2006 actually when I won that. But then I started working full time then that summer in 2006 and I was getting regular money coming in mm-hmm. and like just even to give a small example I remember when I was working in Tullamore I remember leaving one day for my lunch with 20 euros in my pocket I walked into the bookies put 20 euros on a horse at 4 to 1 and it won so I got 100 euros back mm. and then I put 100 euros straight away on a dog at 3 to 1 and that won so like I left work on my lunch break I 
with 20 euro and I come back into work with 400 euro in the space of about 12 minutes. Mm. And I'm going, surely who wouldn't fall in love with this? Yeah. Do you know? And you're having to go back and stand there for 10 euro an hour or whatever you do. Well, well you I was working like, yeah. at the time I was earning probably maybe 450, 60 okay. euros a week. Like, yeah. So like, this is a week's wages in yeah. 12 minutes. So why would you want to work five days a week when you can actually do this? Sure. But see, the problem with me was once I started, I just wasn't able to stop. That's, I was, that's what I was going to ask you because you say you started betting as a hobby or as the weekend and I think for the large majority, particularly young men in particular, like, because it is, it is become, it's sort of a male thing, right? If you're in the pub or it's just part, it's nearly almost part of sport. Mm. Um, I suppose, so going from that hobby at the weekends into the midweek and then it just becoming that sort of regular thing. When you look back now from the position that you're in, where do you think that drive or, or that progression came from? Do you, do you put it down to something or? Yeah, I think uh, there's probably, and that's this is the thing probably about gambling. There's there's a huge different, there's a lot of different avenues that kind of bring you to say gambling or addiction. Like sport, definitely would have been a huge player in that. In terms of, um, I'm a male and I like to think I'm right a lot of the time. So <laughs> me and sport and gambling kind of have a very very good fit. Like I can be watching sport even today and say I think this person's going to win this, and I try not to be too forceful in my opinion. But like if I believe something's going to win, like I would say I think this is going to happen. Um, and I suppose that kind of played into that thing of from a gambling point of view to say well, you know I'm I'm good at this stuff. Like I understand sport. I know exactly what I'm talking about. So. Um, I'm trusting my instinct here or I'm trusting my own judgment to say I think this is going to happen I suppose when I was in the gambling um, frame of mind though that was very much um, uh, I kind of lost that kind of rationality um, because my my I just couldn't stop I literally been a bookies and horse race starting oh, I'm back in the mm. source here and that was it and I wouldn't I even do any research or anything like that it was just I need to get the next bet yeah on. it goes from actually trying to I think this is right to I actually just want it I want yeah. that hate or I want to feel that exactly. that, that exactly. rush is that fair to say absolutely and I think that that ties into the, the football point of view as well or from a sporting point of view or a high level sporting point of view is that the same rush or buzz or anxiety or nervousness that I would get before a big game um, I could replicate that in the bookies every three or four minutes like if you can imagine a horse coming around the bend and it has a furlong out or two furlongs out and I'm looking at this going if this horse wins like I've this amount of money or if it loses like I might not have food this week like sure. if that kind of stuff building up in you and you're going oh. and like then the horse the race would finish and then like oh gee, mm. I need that again and then I go again and like you'd have a dog race right? and like, literally you'd have it every four or five minutes because the dog race lasts max 20 seconds like and a horse race would be max five hit. or six minutes like yeah, exactly yeah. so you're replicating that and obviously then I suppose a big thing that I would have uh, never really known about and never really known that I was um, ignoring um, was I suppose the emotional side of things as well so I only kind of really learned that when I went in for treatment was that gambling for me was a massive escape from reality and a massive escape from me as a person and me emotionally how I was feeling um, like obviously from a gambling point of view financially it's it has huge implications but I would probably say now that gambling is probably 10% a financial problem and I would say it's probably 90% an emotional issue oh, sorry. Um, because obviously financially you're there, you're chasing money, so I've lost X amount, I need to win it back to pay off X amount or whatever it is. So there is that kind of drive to, get, to win money. But um, for me, the big thing for me was I lose a game of football. I've had uh, difficulty in a relationship. I've failed an exam. Um, I'm not happy with my job. I don't want to feel like this. I feel upset or I feel lost. I feel lonely. I don't want to feel like this. Mm -hmm. So as a sports person or as someone that's playing inter-county football, how do I escape from feeling like this? And I don't drink because it's not good for me in terms of physically for my sport. I don't take drugs, um, never took drugs, um, because obviously physically as well, it's not good for me. Hmm. But gambling is a brilliant fit because, you know, it probably, it, 
from some, the outside looking in, you'd say it's a brilliant fit because you're not taking a substance. You know, it's a great distraction. Um, like I could go into the bookies, turn off my phone, and sit there for four hours. Like. It's invisible for all extensive purposes, isn't it? Exactly. But like I, I could go into a bookies, turn off my phone, sit there for four or five hours, and just completely switch off from the outside world, and I'd just be like a zombie. I'd be in there and I'd just be on autopilot, going around and not feeling anything. Now, obviously, there'd be disappointments, there'd be highs, there'd be lows. But in terms of actually, if there was a disappointment or a letdown in my life at some stage, or there was something that I hadn't dealt with um, on an emotional level, and as I said, that could be a breakdown in a relationship, it could be an argument that I had at home, or it could it could be something small could be losing the county final, it could be losing the championship match, whatever it might be. Um, if I didn't want to feel that sadness or that hurt, I'd look for something to to quench it. And mm. for me, gambling was a, uh, an easy solution for me to do it. Now, I, at the time, I didn't know that's what I was doing. But it's only now that I've stopped gambling and those feelings were still there. So they still had to be dealt with. And it's probably only over the last couple of years, last five years that I've learned to actually, how to actually, like I suppose, talk about those experiences and to know that um, they need to be spoken about because if they're not spoken about, they're not going to go away. Um, and I suppose that has been the that has been the key thing for me. I suppose in terms of recovery, to know that these disappointments are going to happen and life isn't easy. Like it's not black and white. That there are things that are going to throw you off path. And to know for me then that gambling isn't the solution to that. Mm-hmm. You know, it has to be me actually talking about. I will. I'll move on to the recovery side of things in a moment. But before you, just just mm-hmm. something you said that struck me there around. Um, I suppose that relationship between the excitement and the buzz from sport and sort of, and the how the bookies may have been a sort of a, a substitute for that or or comparable to that because I know from my perspective it's certainly something I would have really struggled with in around the time when depression really entered my life the cold was because and you may agree or disagree with this but I'll say it out loud and we'll see what you think but uh, so football and sports particularly in the county football you get to play for your county does really beneficial powerful thing you get you know you get reward feeling satisfaction um, and I suppose I would have found at times that normal life was a bit boring compared to that um, and I don't know if, would you agree with that and if you do was the bookies a way that you could go actually well I can just leave that little bit of boring stuff behind for a while yeah. was that part of it yeah 100% I completely agree Um and I suppose this comes back to me when, as we spoke about me making my debut when I was 17, like from all those years when I was 13, 14, 15, like all I wanted to do was be an county footballer. And I always was searching for the next challenge or the mm-hmm. next. So I remember me and my brother having a, a having a sneer or a laugh one time, which I was only about 11 or 12, and I didn't make the often under 14 team. And, he and was, you're 11. Like. Yeah, and he was sneering <laughs> me over this because like he'd met it, like he was, Alan's four years older than me. Like it was only a bit of child. He was 15. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he'd met it like a lot sooner probably than I'd met it when I was younger. Yeah. But I remember feeling hungry, getting angry with him. Like I remember right. going in and actually kicking him in the room one day and he'd come and run after me then. And, you know, usual <laughs> crack. But like, that was all that I wanted. Like I wanted the next challenge or the next challenge. So I made the under 14 team. I said, Jeez, I might make the, I'd love to make the under 16 team now or I made, played minor when I was 15. So like all these different things, I played in a senior county final when I was 15 with Road, and I made the minor under 21, senior in the one year, all these little challenges that I was looking for. Um, but uh, it was just, it was, sorry, just when you say that, like a senior final with Road at 15, like it's just, it's it's a high after a high, really. Exactly, like, exactly. So like, and that was for me, like I needed that kind of challenge. Yeah. And I suppose back then, and that, that's kind of who I became was um, a footballer. Mm-hmm. And I just forgot all the other parts about me. Um so I forgot different things that I used to enjoy when I was like seven or eight or I forgot things that I would have loved doing like um, like even small, like totally insignificant things like um, making up 
model cars or making mm. up like little racetracks around the house or sure. going rollerblading or just small little things that I used to do when I was younger but I kind of just forgot all that stuff yeah. and it all kind of became consumed by football and um, inter-county football and sport and the next challenge and when I was left to my own devices then without any other sport or anything like that I didn't know who it was I was literally there going like I don't know who I am like and what job are you in? Oh, well, I'm in this job because it suits me for football. So yeah. Everton just revolved around me as a footballer. And sure. I think it was, it was like, would have played a, pu- a huge role in terms of me, in terms of where I went from an addiction point of view, because I didn't know who I was. And because I didn't know who I was, I wanted to escape who I was. I was going to say the word escape is the gambling just gave you a way to dodge those questions in your head. Exactly. It was yeah. the it was the perfect way for me to say, oh, I don't have to want to deal with this stuff. So I'll just go into a bookies here for a couple of hours. I'll win loads of money. Sure, then I'll be happy. Sure, I'll buy a nice car then and when I have this nice car then that'll make me happier or have a nice house. Jesus, if someone sees me driving a nice car they want to be my girlfriend or be, you know all this kind of stuff you're saying. You're always looking for, I was looking for things outside of me basically to yeah. make me happy. Um, and I suppose that's kind of what's happened over the last number of years is I've started to look inward and say, right, okay, well, what is actually going to make me happy or who am I? Um, and that's kind of the, probably the journey that I've been on, on, on over the last couple of years. Yeah, we're just, we're about halfway through sort of what we're talking about. What I want to ask, just ask you before we move on, is um and look I don't want I don't like putting figures or asking you how bad it was for you because I suppose with gambling everyone's is different and and everyone's addiction and everyone no matter what stage they're at with it in terms of numbers is is their it's their one and it'll be as bad for them as you know there's no there's no standard bar where it's when mine was worse than yours basically is what I'm saying yeah but what was the was there a rock bottom moment for you where it was like okay like enough is enough um, did you get one? Yeah, I, th- I think I would have got a rock bottom moment loads of times. And yet, I always was given that little bit of hope. Okay. So like once I had money, I was saying, right, okay, I'll solve all my problems here. Like it always went back to that time when I come home or back when I explained there about winning that 2,800 mm-hmm. euro. Like that was always in the back of my head. And I had loads of those um, incidents where I would have won lots mm-hmm. of money. My problem was I couldn't stop. I have to come back the next day to win more. Um, but when I had no money, I was going, ah, oh, this is it. Never doing that again. And I'd often be in the car, I'd be punching the steering wheel of the car, I'd be hitting my head off the steering wheel, I'd be mm. screaming at the top of my voice at myself. And it might take me 20 minutes to drive home from work. And by the time it took me, after all that, shouting and giving out to myself, the 20 minutes it took me to drive from the bookies back to my house, I would be totally, like, I'd be completely switched again. And Reset. Looking, yeah, looking through my phone and going, okay, who can I ring to borrow money off? Because once I got money, I was back in the same road again. So I suppose it got to a point, there was, there was loads of rock bottoms, but I think the key thing for me was, over the years like a lot of people would have enabled my gambling not through their fault mm-hmm. simply because I could spin in a great story like um, and I could go to my father and I could go to my mother and I could say she's I need this money I didn't get paid this week and they just they kind of know that that wasn't the truth but at the same time they didn't want to see me in bad form or whatever so they give me the money but I'd be just out the door and I'd go to the bookies with it um, and I kind of got to the stage around 2011 where they just went actually like we're not giving you money anymore um, and then that was kind of my avenue closed to say well I've no money so. What was that like to be told that? Oh, it was difficult because um I needed it. Like I needed the money to go gambling because I needed to clear off all the debts that I had mm-hmm. and all the troubles that were coming down the line because I'd borrowed money off people. I'd borrowed money from financial institutions. Um, you know, and it was like the walls are starting to close in on me here. Um, and I remember my father called down to my house then. It was in November in 2011 and for half an hour I was just going, oh, everyone's fine, everyone's fine. Just give me money still, there. Still denying. Yeah, yeah. For about half an hour and then for whatever reason I just said, oh, here, do you know what? And just basically said, look, I'm gambling and I can't stop and I don't know what to do. Was that the first time you, you, first you time let the mask slip really, and say, Yeah, yes, first time I really actually went, do you know what, this is actually has me crippled. Okay. And I suppose it was really difficult because I would have gambled and a lot of my friends probably would have gambled, but they would have gambled socially mm-hmm. in terms of going in, having a bet once a week, once a month. And I just couldn't understand how or what was wrong with me. I was going, why can't I just stop? How come when everyone else goes in, 
they can go in, have one bet and walk out and go and have a chat or have a normal conversation. And yet once I'm here, I just don't talk to anyone. I don't want to talk to anyone. And all I want to do is gamble. Why am I like that? Um, so I suppose admitting that was huge for me. And I suppose that was the one really good decision that I made um, that allowed me then to make another, I suppose, bunch of really good decisions from that. And that was probably the, the, the first step in terms of actually getting help and getting recovery from it. Did... Did the decision of, of your mom and dad to say, look, no more, does that help you get to that stage? I suppose the reason I'm asking is because there will be lots of families listening or lots of people listening who have someone that they're thinking of in mind. Um, and probably the hardest thing to do to someone you love is to say, I'm not giving you this or I'm not helping you because we're naturally, you will naturally want to do it. Um, I just, how do you see that decision now in hindsight? Because it, it had to have been an incredibly difficult thing for your parents to say, listen, like we can't, we can't help you with this anymore. Yeah. Uh, did, yeah. But did it, did it help in the grand scheme of things? Oh, it was the best thing for me because mm. if, if they didn't, I would have kept going. There's no doubt about it. And people, you even mentioned about figures, like the figures don't actually matter in terms of how much money I would have lost mm. gambling. Like if I had access to 10 million, I would have lost 10 million. Like it wasn't the actual financial thing. It was the, what was it doing for me? What was That's I going back to the emotional side as exactly. well, what you what, talked about. Yeah, what was I trying to escape from? Um, but I suppose, now I say that they stopped giving me money. It was basically got to a stage where I bled them dry. Like they didn't really have any more to give. Like, and um, you know that like that even today like that hurts my feelings because sure. like they didn't deserve that as well you know like anyway mm. but um like it's been great over the last number of years because i've been able to repay that or you know repay it in terms of you know being there or in terms of financially as well you know there's a whole load of different ways that i can repay that kind of stuff but um i think from a family point of view yeah it is the really hardest thing to actually say well actually you know what no but for me, it was definitely the best thing for the simple reason that then it made me, as I said, the walls came in then and I went, well, you know what? I actually have to make a decision here. Um, am I going to go out and start stealing money? Am I going to go out and start doing other things to get money? Um, or am I actually just going to say, well, you know what? I need a bit of help. And I suppose for me, actually sharing that thing to my father, I was saying, look, I'm actually, um, like, I'm in a bad way here. For me, actually sharing that meant that just the weight that was lifted off my shoulder was an unbelievable feeling. Like, it's absolutely indescribable. It's like nothing I've ever experienced before. And as I say, from that one experience, I was able to um, load of really, really good things happen very, very quickly after. So that conversation leads you to the Roland Centre, yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose, because there will be a lot of people who, don't, that is a step into the unknown, they won't know about it. Yeah. But before that, so you, you go into the Roland Centre, and if I, had to put a ma- or if I had to put a mirror in front of your face that day, mm-hmm. what would you have saw in yourself when you look back now? How would you feel about that? That's a great question. Um and I've often shared this, I do a talk here and there about, about this kind of stuff, but I remember going up in the car that day, my father drove me up, we were going up the Nace Road, and I remember sitting there, I had no phone, obviously when you're in the Rutland Centre, it's no phone, no television or anything like that for the five weeks, you get television at the weekends. But I remember sitting in the car, 25, 26 years of age, like bringing myself back to that 17-year-old that was playing into county football, that kind of basically had the world at his feet in terms of anything that I really wanted to do in my teens, I was able to do it. Um, anything I set my mind to I was able to do it and that had all gone once I, once gambling came into my life all of that had gone because I wasn't making correct decisions I was like being very very immoral in a lot of stuff that I was doing and obviously that was um, having a negative impact in other aspects of my life as well and obviously there would be some good days but generally it was um, I'd say if there was three, 365 days in a year I'd say like 340 days were bad um, but I remember sitting thinking that in the car going up like going, how have you gotten yourself into this situation like how has it got to this? Um, I 
and really not being comfortable who I was. But there was another thing then as well, and it comes back to the emotional side of things. Some mornings I'd wake up before I went into, before I admitted about me gambling, and I was gambling, and I knew I shouldn't have been gambling. Like I knew going into a bookies that I shouldn't be there. I knew that, but I also knew that this was the only place that I get any kind of comfort in terms of how I was feeling. But some mornings I'd wake up, and I'd look at myself in the mirror, I'd be brushing my teeth, and I'd say, "You're no good, like how what are you doing with your life," and have all these kind of negative, um, suppose comments towards myself. And then I go into the bookies that day, knowing, really knowing that I was going to lose all my money, and kind of resigned to the fact that I knew I was going to lose it because if I won next amount, it didn't matter because I was still going to keep gambling until it was all gone anyway. But then when I'd lose all my money, I basically walk out, look at myself in the mirror in the car, and say, "Told you, yeah, you're no good." So it's, it's a negative cycle. It's just really reaffirming yeah, that initial negative com- thought, like completely confirming mm-hmm. what what I said to myself that morning. Um, you're no good. You're no good, and literally just keep myself down there. I suppose that was a big thing then in the treatment centre was to actually say, well, you know what, just take on and out of your life. Start doing good things. Um, just start, like, you know, looking, taking care of yourself, um, being polite to people, um, like open the door for someone, hold it open. Just small little, small yeah. steps on the road to actually being a better person. And I suppose once that started, then that just kind of meant that um, I started to see good things start to happen very, very quickly. Um, and when you get good things happening, you go, well, geez, you know what, this is actually starting to work. So you want to do more good things and then it just kind of has a knock-on effect. Yes, in terms of those good things and, and getting those, if it's those little bits of satisfaction or those little mm. rewards, it's, is it is it like channeling the same sort of rationale or trying to talk but into something positive? Is that? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Like, and something positive for me back then was, right, I'm after leaving, so I've left the Rutland Centre. Everyone knows about it. I've done an interview mm. in the paper. Um, now I'm trying to get my life back on track. So I'm back to work where I'd been working before that. Um, and the boys text me on a Saturday evening and say, Niall, we're going to watch the James Bond film. Do you want to come? And I'm thinking, yeah, I'm going to get 20 euros. I'm going to go into this film, I'm going to hand 20 euros in, get me a ticket, buy a bottle of water. I have a Coke, will you? Have a Coke, whatever. Sprite, <laughs> Sprite maybe. And a, a, a large popcorn. And I pay me 20 euros yeah. and I get back 8 euros. And I'm going, sitting with the lads, seven or eight of us, having a great laugh and a sneer and throwing bonbons at the, ta- at the big screen and everyone else in front of us. <laughs> and then I go home. So after about four hours of enjoyment. Yes, and it only cost me 12 euros whereas if that was and you've had four hours of enjoyment as you said if that was six weeks previous or eight weeks previous before I went in for treatment I wouldn't have went to that because first if I had money I would have needed that for the next day to go gambling mm-hmm. or else um, I would have lost it all that day so I wouldn't have been able to do it and this thing then of being home lying on the couch or lying in bed and have to do with your own head feeling sorry for myself so these are only just little small little things that I started to do then to say well this is actually a bit of fun and you know what I actually deserve this I deserve to have a bit of fun mm-hmm. you know and it kind of comes back into this thing of absolutely I've made loads of mistakes when I was gambling and I told a lot of lies in terms of taking money or borrowing money off people or whatever it was but to say I had an addiction as well um, and I was running from certain things as well so I cut myself a bit of slack mm-hmm. and said well I'm not doing it now so as I started kind of being easier on myself in terms of how I was behaving then I kind of started to feel much better about myself then as well now it took a lot of time it, it, that was generally an early stage of recovery and obviously over a period of time you get stronger and stronger and stronger um, but they're only little, small, little, tiny things that I started to appreciate a lot more. So me and my mother used to go every Sunday for dinner. Um, I bring her out for dinner, and we go in, and well, she'd bring me out one week. I bring her out the next next week, and just something small. Sit down there for an hour and actually have a conversation with your mother, which is something that I never would have done mm. because um, this is never there. Like I didn't want to talk to anyone else, and that was a big thing for me when I was gambling as well. Was I thought in my mind I was losing my money, I was in bad form, but it was me that it was affecting. It wasn't having an effect on anybody else which was actually totally not true. It was having a massive effect on a lot of other people, family members, friends, teammates, 
Um, but when I was gambling in that gambling head, I just thought I was affecting myself. Um, so it was nice to be able to give back. And I suppose that's a part of the recovery program would be making amends. Now, it can be making amends financially or it can be making amends just, I suppose, emotionally or whatever it is and actually just being there for someone and having a conversation with them and, um, you know, just, I suppose, asking how they are. So I never would have asked my mother how she was. Actually, and you just be just being present even when you are having a conversation. Like exactly, yeah, exactly. Just think of, you know, just being able to put the phone down or read the phone in the car and go in and actually have a normal conversation with someone. Like it's difficult, and that's like I'm coming from a point of view of addiction, and like there's some people in general society at the minute that aren't in addiction or mm-hmm. you know, but even still, that's difficult for them. So you can imagine how difficult it could be for somebody else like me, maybe that um, struggles with being present, struggles with being actually sitting there on my own and saying, right, okay, how actually am I? Because when these feelings start to come up, um, and I think everyone experiences them, I just think some people have better coping mechanisms, and my coping mechanism would have been very, very poor. I suppose that's something that I've had to develop over the last number of years to actually deal with um, things that have happened, I suppose. That that initial phase of the recovery as such, like I think no matter if it's an addiction for gambling, if it's depression, if it's addiction to alcohol, like we're, it's, there's often a lot of build-up to the asking for help, asking for help. And when you do that, I suppose what I wanted to ask you was, how difficult is the next couple of weeks? Because when you reach out for help and you say you get that offload with your dad and you go, it's off my chest. Yeah. But I think, because one of the things I always like to cover over, because I think it's important to say it, that like the next phase is really challenging. Um, but I think it's, does it come back to just reaffirming to yourself that you're on the right path, that yeah. you're on the right path? Yeah. Like, or was it challenging for you? It might have that was just me. No, it was challenging. Absolutely. And I think the, the initial thing for me, and I, I got, not that I got lucky, but um, I I told my father, but then me going into the Rutland Centre was absolutely 100% the best thing for me to do after that. Um, it was for five weeks. I was shut off in the world for five weeks, basically. Um, I did a lot of work on myself in terms of, you know, who I was, um, things that I'd done, and um, from maybe, like, as I say, borrowing money, telling lies, all this kind of immoral stuff. And uh, it was a safe environment to do that. So I think that if I didn't go in for treatment, to actually go back and start trying to live a normal day life with all this other stuff hanging over you and trying to deal with that at the same time, it would have been very, very difficult for me. Did that period let you have a very sort of distinct, oh, what's the best way to describe it, is it? A spell of reflection? Yeah. Um, and to look at yourself, going back, I asked the question about the mirror, but actually looking in the mirror and answering it honestly. Yeah, definitely. And is that what that... Just because, so, so I might be fully clear what goes on in the run centre for five weeks, or someone else might be, but is that what's the general gist of what's happening there? Yeah, it is, and a lot of it is. So, there'll be a lot of group sessions as well. So, you might have every day for five days, you'll have to, uh, two group sessions a day mm. for an hour and a half. And basically, I was in a group with people that were struggling with alcohol, people struggling with drugs, eating disorders, okay. sex addiction, it could be anything really. Mm-hmm. Um, but all the behaviours are kind of the same. So, yeah. the substance might be different, but the behaviours would be the same. And we would basically just talk about, you know, how are we feeling today? Like, anything coming up for you? Any doubt, any, um, I suppose, discomfort, um, any sadness, any guilt, any shame coming up for you, or, and we'd best we speak about it, we'd have some exercises to do then, like things called, like a life script where you'd like, write about um, your life from when you were maybe, whenever, when your earliest memory, mm-hmm. your earliest memory basically up to you're about 20 years of age, and just to be able to verbalise that then, and go back over stuff, and kind of reconnect with, I suppose, our younger selves to find out actually, you know, who are we? What made us all tick? Why did we go the way we go? What were we running from? What What's the escape? And just to kind of figure out exactly who we are. And I suppose that for me was really, really important because that five weeks was very, very, you know, you're up in the morning, you're eating good food, you're into group sessions, you're talking, you're getting into yeah. the habit of talking. Um, some of the days then would be things called concerned person day where, um, so people that are, 
basically a concerned person, it could be a parent, a brother or sister, a girlfriend, a wife, whatever it is, comes in and tells you what your addiction is like for them. So my mother, for example, would sat across from me basically to tell me what my addiction was like okay. or how it made her feel. And what was that like to hear that? That was torture. Was it? <laughs> yeah, it really was because it was the first, she probably had told me before. Mm-hmm. But, but I the never, first time you were listening to yeah, it? Yeah, it was the first time I was actually ever yeah. here and you're in a group and everyone else is in the group as well. Okay. And I suppose they're all taking notes because when she goes home on a Tuesday, yeah. we come back in on a Wednesday and we basically go over what has okay. been said. So it's very difficult to hear all that stuff. But as I, I said, imagine I, so. yeah, I'm in a very, very safe environment here. So I'm yeah. in, in that, in that, in the centre, I was in a very, very safe environment. Um, and if I felt sad, maybe on a Tuesday or felt sad on a Wednesday or felt sad on a Thursday, I'd sometimes find then by Friday, not feeling too bad. And it kind of triggered it in my head to say, well, I'm going to have bad days but I don't have to go to the bookies. Mm-hmm. Just like someone else can have bad days, they don't have to go drinking, or someone else can have bad days, yeah. they don't have to act out in another way, whatever it might be. And that kind of went to me, oh, I just, you know, yeah, I felt bad, but now it's Friday, and she's feeling pretty good here. Like, I'm not a bad person. I just did some bad things, but, you know, I was in an addiction. I was, um, I suppose, wasn't in the right frame of mind. And now I'm awake. I'm actually, I'm here, and I'm trying to face up to it, and I'm trying to better myself. Um, and I'm taking this stuff on board and yeah I don't feel good about it but it's passing and it's starting to ease and the more it was starting to ease then the more confident I was getting in myself and said yeah I'm like I'm a good guy I can go and uh, I can live a normal life and I can be nice to people um, if, if I put gambling into my life now I'm not a nice person mm. I don't like myself when I'm gambling it's toxic oh yeah absolutely and all is all those little behaviours start to come back of telling lies being deceitful being angry being you know, a little bit arrogant, trying to be the big lad. Like I might go to a pub after winning big on a on a day's racing or whatever, and I just start trying to buy a drink for people, yeah, just to pretend. Whereas if you went for a cup of coffee across the road now, like, like you'll buy your own, and I'll buy. <laughs> I my might own. even buy you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like that, but that's that's the way I am yeah. now because I don't need to be. And I think that's yeah. and it's something as well probably that I learned was I learned to say no. I got I dip in and out of this, but I've probably learned to say no a lot more as well. I would have been a huge people pleaser as well when I was um, wanting people to like me. So I'll say, oh yeah, I'll do that for you. Or I'll do this. And it just ended up that I was feeling more and more under pressure. Whereas in the last, I found maybe in the last year that I was kind of getting back into that stage of just I'll do this or I'll do that and really overload myself with, with probably too much things to do. Whereas even the last month or so, I started to kind of step back and say, well, actually, do you know what? That doesn't suit me. Um, I'll do that. This, that doesn't suit me. And just to start picking things that are right for me, that are that are proper for me. Because obviously when I speak about my gambling, um, people want a piece of that and they want to hear they want to want you to come and share and, and that's fine like and I completely understand it but is that really the best thing for me Um, I don't think so and I would hate to go back into that old way of going back gambling or doing something else that isn't uh, isn't good for me because then all this is like it's it's kind of not that it's not it's, it's useless but it's it's kind of it's it's contradictory I'm contradicting myself because I'm actually not doing the programme I'm not looking after myself first so like I can't really look after anyone else or do anything for anyone else unless I'm I'm in proper control of my own life first yeah I think the last couple of months have just been an unbelievable amount of really good learnings um, and I suppose from that period of, of reflection that you just described first of all like thank you very much for that because I just think that was incredible um, and I, I four things jumped out to me as you're talking there and I'm going to list them again just to really try and re-emphasize them for anyone that's listening that's either worried about someone else or if they're thinking it in their own mind one was the self-reflection and self-awareness that you took from that period the second one was around actually learning to articulate your feelings because I think from a gambler's lifestyle and I think it's the same for someone who's going with depression if it's alcohol addiction or drug addiction 
you basically do that stuff to avoid one thinking about your feelings and two absolutely from articulating your feelings mm-hmm. and then the other two that i was just going to quickly ask you about was becoming aware of the triggers and also the coping mechanisms for when that because I'm, I'm sure that feeling still does come in the mix yeah particularly at the earlier stages <laughs> did you become more aware of what if you had to pick out what say two or three key triggers were for you? Like, did you? Do you take stock of those and learn to avoid them or how do you navigate that? Yeah, um, and there are, like, I suppose that's a, another huge thing. I would have been given a lot of advice, so simple tools in terms of um, things to avoid. Um, very, very simple things, like, and things that I never really, oh, dude, that's, that's <laughs> simple, like. But um, the big thing, obviously, is from a emotional point of view that I'm speaking to people. Um, that's a huge thing. That's the massive part. But then there's all this, obviously, little practical things that I can do outside of that, so... I don't watch horse racing anymore. Mm-hmm. I haven't watched a horse race in geez, over five years. I don't watch dog racing anymore. They are my two primary um, so sports that I would have uh, gambled on. And that one, just, sorry, before you go on, can I ask you, yeah. what's it like during Cheltenham week when it takes hold here and it's everywhere? It's on every station. It's on front page of newspapers, back page of newspapers. It's everywhere online. Yeah. What do you do? Because really, I think that's a really, if I, I know one or two people as well. Mm. What's that week like for you and what do you do to cope with that? Yeah, that's a good question as well. I would have been... Um, from a Cheltenham point of view, I just need to be safe around it. So if I'm in the car, I won't be listening to the radio. Mm. I would have um, iTunes on or I'd be listening to my own, whatever it is. I'd be listening to your podcast, whatever it might be. <laughs> um, if, um, You'll be listening to yourself oh, next yeah, week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wait for next Cheltenham. But, um, so there'd be, that'd be one thing that I would do. Um, I don't be on social media much because everyone wants to think they're an expert on yeah. Cheltenham that week. So I just don't be... I'll just go avoid on, it. But yeah, exactly. I completely avoid it. Um, I suppose the big thing for me with Cheltenham is, and some people often say this about um, say an alcoholic someone will say if I didn't drink Paddy's Day I get over Christmas right so Cheltenham would be the same for me so it would be the weeks after Cheltenham that would actually be more um, difficult for me because Cheltenham's such a big thing people build themselves up to say right Cheltenham's on uh, I have to avoid this avoid that avoid this and then don't gamble during Cheltenham but then they go just didn't do great there and you kind of give yourself a pat on the back and say ah sure maybe I'm alright like you know, maybe I can have one little bit here. But Cheltenham is such a big thing in terms of, right, it's in your face all the time. But from a point of view of, from me when I was gambling, like I would have gambled on Cheltenham, but like, it was Cheltenham every week. Like, yeah, I know. You know, it mm. didn't really make a difference. I know if I go to a bookie's there's going to be horse racing on yeah. it, you know, and I can go in and have a bet. But I suppose that's just a few, like, just to kind of avoid that. But I suppose the other practical things that I would do then, I don't buy lottery tickets anymore. Uh, I don't buy scratch cards. Um like I used to buy a lot of tickets and I put it in my car for about a month and I'd be listening out on the radio to hear was the lot of one and no one had collected it yet okay. to try and convince myself that I'm after winning the lot yeah. like, this is where my mind was gone to um, don't buy lottery tickets don't buy scratch cards um, don't watch horse racing don't watch dog racing don't read the racing section of a newspaper anymore don't associate really with anyone that gambles anymore don't associate in a conversation around gambling anymore um, just really kind of and, I, and I, when I say gambling as well it was funny because I was in the Rutland Centre once and or when, once when I was in the Rutland Centre one of the councillors asked me to pick out um, three things over a weekend of how I was still gambling and this was in the house okay now in I terms wasn't, of your day to day sort yeah, of behaviours yeah I wasn't gambling financially but okay so say for example if someone walked into a room and the door opened in my mind I'd be guessing geez that's Alan okay before they come in so like that was just my mind that's just the way it is mm-hmm. like that's just how my mind works really interesting yeah or there's another guy that was in the house with us and when we were going up for dinner he used to always pick up two plates and have one plate back to the person behind him and I remember sitting there one Saturday or something and I said to one of the girls I said look now I can guarantee you John will pick up this 
uh, play it. And he went, two players, he'll have one to the person behind him. The next thing they did, and that for me, it gave me this little kind of, uh, you were mm. like, well done, kind of thing, patting the back sort of stuff. So I tried to watch that as well on a daily basis. That's difficult because obviously, you know, you're on a, it's it's hard to be present and that kind of stuff all the time. But um, so there's, I suppose, small things that I would that I would do just to kind of keep me safe from that kind of an environment. Um, I need a, like it's difficult as well social media Facebook Twitter there's a lot of uh, gambling sites advertising mm-hmm. like if a gambling like was on television I just switch yeah. it off don't watch it um, like the half say the half time in any soccer games yeah. on Sky Sports is just absolutely yeah plastic it's all like. over the place yeah and even listen to the radio you might hear the racing results as soon as it comes on I just switch just it off if I'm at home my mother and she's watching the news and her, the sports section was on and the rest comes on um, we just switch the channel um, but when you switch that channel do you get a little mini fist pump smile to yourself on where like because um, I'm supposed to be thinking like because for years you would have gone the net like, when it was an urge day you would have gone the negative route and then you you try and trace that kick yeah but just doing the positive influence thing yourself does that give you a kick in a different way like yeah it definitely does yeah it, it, but it gives you I suppose it does to a point I suppose the thing that gives me most of a kick is the relationships that I have with people now mm. that's the biggest kick so yeah. for me to be at home and say with my mother and the racing comes on or the results come on and the news and I change the channel or she changes the channel um. That's obviously, yeah, that's me keeping safe. But the real kick for me is being actually there, sitting down there, having a conversation with my mother, seeing mm. how she is, or yeah. whoever that might be, because I'm now there, I'm actually fully there, and I'm not thinking, I need to get money. How much per- money do I owe that person? How much money do I owe this person? Who can I ring now to borrow money mm. off? Need to get back into the bookies tomorrow. What time is the bookies open at? Is your I'm mind actually, just a lot easier? Oh, it's just like, like you've, well, yeah. it's, it is, it's a good thing to a point, but then if other stuff going on in your head yeah. then as well, and you're trying to silence that then as well, but that all comes back to the recovery process of actually opening up and sharing, okay, well, what's actually going on from here? Um, emotionally, what's coming up for me? And being, being able to actually find a safe environment to share that stuff that's going on for me. That's what I was going to ask you there is, as you're reflecting on all that and just trying to draw different things together, what does a balanced lifestyle look like or feel like for you now? Because you're obviously in a much better place and, and things mm. I, I think are going pretty well for you. Yeah. What does that, that what does that balanced lifestyle feel like at the minute or look like? Yeah, and I suppose things are things are going well in terms of the, from a recovery point of view, things are going well. But there are still challenges in my life at the minute in terms of um still trying to figure out who I am and you know, where exactly am I going? Um like a, I obviously set up my own business here a couple of years ago and a lot of my energy now goes into that, and that's a positive energy. What know? is the business just for anyone that's not listening? Yeah, or actually, uh, that uh, is listening. I hope. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, set up, <laughs> I set up. A, I set up a sports brand here about uh, just over two years ago called Twelve. So we basically did uh, half length GA socks or football socks, sports socks, basically. Um, we're trying to expand that range now this year into like um, compression gear, um, gym apparel, all that kind of stuff. So that's been really, really exciting, and that's something that has. Um, that's something that has taken my energy, but it's something positive. Yeah, you're getting channel into a good thing. Exactly. So, like for a long, long number of years, all all it took my energy was gambling. And mm-hmm. how do I, um, you know, how do I, I'm just going to focus all my energy into gambling? And by doing that, then it was just coming up negative, negative, negative. Whereas this is actually focusing my energy into something that's actually positive, and then, um, hopefully, it's kind of building a future for myself as well. And it's something that I'm passionate about as well. I would have done a lot of work on myself as well around who am I. Um, what are things that get me out of bed in the morning what are things that are going to make me excited to go and do um, on a daily basis and I suppose there is a risk in that as well so people often say like is it a gamble is it? I like to use the word risk because um, and I actually remember speaking to, to Tom Cribbin about this Tom used to be my boss he's the Westmead manager now and I'd sometimes bounce things off him in terms of from a business point of view he, he'd be a very very good businessman and I remember setting up the business and kind of going like I'm a little bit worried am I am I doing this because am I doing this for the right reasons and he gave me some great advice and I look 
anyone in life in general on a daily basis, everything they do is a risk. So if they go and work on one job, that's a risk. Like if they leave that job to go to another job, that's a risk, even if they're in a safe environment. So for me setting up my own business, it was something that it really, really reflected my personality and really suited me as a person. It suited me then as a footballer as well because it's meant that um, from a time point of view, it's allowed me then the time to balance my own time around training. Um, if I come home from training at half ten at night and I want to do an hour or two hours work, I can do that like because again, it's something that I'm really passionate about. So uh, it, it's not really like work anymore to be honest. Which is great. Yeah. Which wasn't the case like when I was in other jobs. It was just a chore like going home from training going, oh my God, the thoughts going to work tomorrow. And that's not the case anymore. So I, I, I'm, I'm lucky in that point of view and I really see that. I'm really grateful for that because okay. I know a lot of people aren't in that kind of a situation. Um, that would be my dream for the whole world. Yeah. That, everyone, that everyone literally was yeah. in the job that they absolutely love. Mm-hmm. You know. The risk, the risk point you touch upon there I think is really interesting because I, I agree with that 100%. Like it is, that's what life is. Things are going to go well. Some days, sometimes they're not. Like some product's going to sell for you. Some products, it's, it's not. Yeah. Um, and I think like, it, it, it always brings you back to, I think it's, yeah, it was a conversation that we had, that I had with Kevin McMenamin in the episode one around resilience because it's the same sort of thing. Like if it's risk and failure or things going well and not. Like, and for me, I think a lot of it comes back to the self-awareness piece again and that, you know, if you take a risk and it doesn't work out, that you see it for what it is and you say, okay, that one hasn't worked. Now draw a line. What do I do about it? Can this mm. be saved? Or do I have to just move on from that? Yeah. Rather than, and I'm par- paraphrasing here, but if you're in if you're in a gambling mindset, it's it, this is going well or this is not going well. Like, what do I have to do to try and like transform this rather than just drawing a line? Does that make sense? You, well, have to ramble yeah. a bit, but. Uh, you know, I, I understand completely, completely understand what you're saying. And I agree because... Something that then again is, is a kind of a, t- a tool I would have learned in the Rutland Centre would be to actually to learn to sit with myself and actually in calm and peace and quiet and mm. say, what is the next best thing to do here? Yeah. What do I have to do? Um, and that might be a thing of saying, right, I need to sell a company or I need to go get another job or I need to you know, supplement myself with another income or whatever it might be. But just make sure that the next decision that I make is the correct decision. And I suppose the only way for me to do that, obviously, is get advice at some level. But then another level is to actually go inward and say, right, okay. And that could be like sitting on me. Like sometimes I can get into the car and drive mm-hmm. for an hour with no radio on. I literally will be driving and processing my own experience myself and to say, okay, well, what is the next best move I have to make in order for my life um, to progress to the next level or whatever it is with business, with relationships, with football, sport, whatever it is. And to really get connected to me. Because I think, and I shared a story the other day. I'm not sure now if this will if this will make sense. But I was uh, I was chatting to a guy last week, and I, we're just, we're talking about not sure what we're talking about. But I just started talking to him about the grass, and he said, "What do you mean?" Like, and I said, "Well, like, I asked him did he have a lawnmower, and he said, yeah. And I said, "Why do you have a lawnmower?" And he said, "To cut the grass." And I said, "Why do you need to cut the grass?" And he said, "Because well, it grows." Like, and I said, well, "Why does the grass grow?" And he goes, well, "I don't know." <laughs> but like, I was basically saying that it knows um, instinctively. To grow, mm-hmm. it's a bit like flowers need no one to yeah. bloom and all this kind of stuff. And I think that same instinctiveness, if that's the word, is in all of us. Like, mm-hmm. so for me, then it's a matter of the only way I can connect with that is to actually close off the rest of the world and say, okay, well, who am I? And start reconnecting with me. That's through meditation or it's through just sitting in silence or whatever it is, and saying, right, okay, the right answer comes to me then and says, right, okay, well, I, this is what I need to do, and you just feel it. You feel intuitively that that's the next best thing to do. And I think when you're connected to that. Um, you won't really go too far wrong but I suppose my problem when I was gambling was I never had time to settle with that I didn't really want to get to that space so yeah. it was wah, 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 let's go and gambling in a way you're actually 
purposely avoiding going to that space. Is that exactly. yeah. fair to say? 100%. Or? And I, I would be in a job or even or somewhere that I wasn't happy in, but mm-hmm. I'd just be there because, ah, give me money to go gambling. Yeah, maybe give me money to go gambling. Um, whereas now, if I if I was in a job now that I didn't like, I could I would just sell. This Not is, for me. Yeah, this isn't for me. And I'd know that it was for me, but I'd also know that I'm going to be okay because there's a reason that this job isn't for me and there's a reason that I know I'm going to be okay because something in me is telling me I need to go and do something else because that's the thing that I'm supposed to be doing. Um, and that changes like that could at the moment at the moment I've my own business. Um obviously I meet people in terms of one to one from gambling point of view, all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. But I um that could change. And if that happens in six months or it could be five years time, ten years time, I might say, actually I meant to be doing something else. And that will just that decision will come and I know that I'll be okay because I know that that's the thing that I meant to be doing. Yeah, that's because it goes back to the the risk where things go well and things not. But for you to be able to say, I know I'll be okay and I think like just from listening to you, I'd imagine that's because your core is strong now, like in terms of, and I don't mean your core is in doing the plank for six minutes of training, like, but actually, that's not strong <laughs> but actually like the, because the, when someone says, like, you know, like knowing who you are, understand who you are, and I'm fortunate enough to have felt like this, and Jamie Clark talked about it in last week's episode around actually going away to find himself a little bit and just mm. sort of, just, it is connected to yourself. And sometimes when we hear that, sometimes people go, oh, like, you know, yeah. what's that about? But like, it's really important that you're, that you're able to have that and see yeah. and see what's important to you and what you want to do. And I think you, you've described that journey and that process out of there and sort of to a point where you're, you're with 12, it's 12 now and you've got your business going well. And what I wanted to do just for the last couple of minutes was I wanted to just look at the wider picture with gambling in, mm-hmm. terms, of, in terms of our society. And the first question that I was going to ask is, how do you feel about gambling's place in, in modern society? Where do you see that now? Um, yeah, I suppose people close to me um, that would have seen me in trouble and would have seen me lose a lot of money from gambling don't like the bookies anymore. Mm. They kind of blame them. I don't blame them um, at all, really, because if it wasn't gambling, it was something else. It was going to be something else. Um, that could just be literally social media That could be going on Facebook for You needed escapism So yeah. you were going to go hunt it for, exactly, for somewhere for something Gambling just was a really really good fit Okay Now I will say this um, There are a lot of dangers around gambling um, And a lot of dangers that people don't understand So the small little practical things That I would have been given In terms of not watching horse racing Not watching dog racing Like the general public don't know um, What is being fed to them When they're actually watching um a sporting event or when there's gambling involved they don't realise the triggers that are setting off in their heads um, and some people are just to just get attracted to it mm. um, and I suppose a big thing for me is the advertising around it that's very very difficult so just if I sometimes I go back into my to my suppose gambling head and if I'm sitting down watching a game of soccer or whatever I'm watching a game and it's half time and next day it goes to the ad, ad breaks and if I'm after being in the bookies all day and I'm after losing all my money and I've said right okay I'm never doing that again I'm stopping it I'm going to get recovery I'm going to Gamblers Anonymous I'm going to Treatment Centre and whatever and next thing I'm sitting there watching the, the Masters say for example at the weekend a break comes in the Masters that goes off into a break and here are three gambling advertisements yeah. one of the gambling companies said if you set up an account with us today we'll give you a hundred euro free bet me and my gambling head I'm going that's it that's my ticket out that's my way to get all my money back and then I'm straight back into the same routine again you know and people just don't understand um, I suppose I understand it to a point because I've gone through it and I've I know the pitfalls and I know the things to avoid. But other people don't know that and they don't know the stuff that's been fed to them. Um so from that point of view I think it's very, very difficult. Also, if I was to go into a bank today to get a car loan, 
the bank would basically say, well, how much money do you earn every month? What are your other outgoings? Do you have any other loans? But if I went to a, an online website or a bank or a gambling site today, um, I don't get asked any of those questions. Yeah, fire, Spe- fire. Especially in. deposit money. We don't care where you get the money from. You could have stole it. You could have, whatever. We don't care. You just deposit that in your account and away you go. Similarly then, I can go to another bank tomorrow and ask for a car loan and they'll say, well, hold on now for a second. You got a car loan in the other bank yesterday. So, um, like, what do you need another one for? Whereas I can set up an account in one bookies today and go to another bookies tomorrow and they won't ask any of those questions. So there's no regulation around it. It just means people can gamble and gamble and gamble. Yeah. There's no paper trail in terms of money financially where people are and it just it just means that um, it just leads to a lot of anti-social behaviour in terms of, I don't mean like from people shouting around, I mean from um, people stealing money, people telling lies, uh, people going to financial institutions, putting themselves under serious pressure with debt. Um, and that's just kind of where it's got to, you know. It's... Uh, from that point of view, it's very, very difficult because I suppose people don't realise the pitfalls that are there. Do you still get tested at times, like even now that like you're a good bit down the line, but it's just, yeah. do you still get tested like yeah, that? Yeah, there will be, like, it wouldn't be very regular, but mm-hmm. say maybe three or four times in a year I might get an urge yeah. to say, right, and I literally, it's for a split second. But it's brilliant, I suppose, the learning that I've got is if I get that urge, I'm going, right, what's wrong? Mm. There's something wrong with me emotionally. There's something wrong with me in life. I'm procrastinating over something. I'm stressed about something. I'm lonely. Um, we've lost the game uh, work didn't go well today there's a whole host of different things and basically the only way for me to figure that out is either to be in that silence on my own or else to actually to go and have a conversation Talk with someone about and it. actually just trash out what's actually going on for me and by doing that then it mightn't be that day but it, could be the, it might be the next day but it could be the day after and eventually I go that's what it was that's why that's why that feeling came or that's why that um, urge to gamble came because I'm not dealing with something that's going on for me emotionally when I was gambling I was just sly mm. like I'd be thinking how can I get money like okay who can I rob here now or who can I borrow money off or what lie can I tell to get this money back and just doing like just being really really dishonest it just brought out a side of me that I just didn't like mm. when I was gambling I didn't like who I was when I stopped gambling I like who I am most of it do you know yeah. um, for me it's abstinence um, mm. abstinence based and it needs to be done straight away and I suppose there's very very positive knock on effects from stopping gambling straight away for people that do stop in terms of a couple of days so imagine you get paid once a week and you get paid on a Thursday and you've stopped gambling on a Wednesday and next thing you're back the following Thursday and you get paid again and then you look at the bank and go, I actually have money here. Because mm. um, when you're gambling, you don't have money. You think that it's, that I'm gonna, but like for years, like I remember one year in particular, I think, oh, 52 weeks, I think 50 weeks of those, I used to get paid on a Friday and I'd run straight over to the bookies and most of those, I, I would 50 weeks in a year, i come back to work in the afternoon with all my wages gone. Gone. Yeah. And like, so why was I doing it like? So it wasn't got to do with the money. I convinced myself that it was, but it was what was I escaped from? Like what drive was I looking for? So I think for like for anyone that stops straight away and says, right, okay, I'm finished and goes to get uh, recovery, let it be Gamblers Anonymous or one-to-one counselling, whatever it is, they see the benefits very, very early of this thing, like I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, of being able to go to the cinema with the lads, bring your 20 euro, have a good night and yes. go home and go, didn't ring anyone, look for money, didn't borrow anyone, didn't tell any lies, feel good about myself, was able to go out and have a bit of crack what's the problem like why do I need to do this in the first place so that's a very very early thing that you can spot straight away open up your mind to that there's a different way of life exactly now I suppose after a few weeks of that then the emotional stuff's going to come up so the I suppose the the debris of your gambling addiction Mm. and what it done to other people that's going to start to come up but there are things then that you can do in that in terms as I said one to one counselling there's steps like making amends to people um, doing up a financial inventory which would be like basically writing down all the money you owe to people and to start making inroads into paying that back putting a plan in place exactly around all that um, that obviously helps heal relationships with the people as well because you're able to exactly because like 
those conversations must be awkward to have at the time. But if you go to a person and approach, and some of them people may have been okay with it, some people may have been fairly burned by it at times. Yeah. But that is a healing and repairing friendships and relationships of saying, listen, I'm in a bad place, but I'm putting this in place and I'm giving you this commitment that I'm going to do this. Yeah. And did that make did that make it easier for you just to sort of, as you you said it earlier on, to sort of draw the line and go, well, okay, like, yeah. I'm going to start chipping away at this. Exactly. Now. And basically that was my thing. But when I was gambling, didn't really like who I was because of the nighty behaviours that I had. But when I stopped gambling, I was actually able to go, not a bad lad here. Yeah. And I can start actually doing things that were good. Which one thing would be like paying back money and to like do a financial inventory sure. and say, right, okay, who do I owe money to? And to be able to meet some of those people, have a conversation and apologize to them. And that was a big thing as well around uh, the interview that I would have done for Dairish Independent was that that kind of opened the door to that, that um, I'm trying to get help here. And I suppose people can say, read, some people might have read that and admit, oh, just here we go, kind of thing. It's not going to change or this isn't going to happen. But then seven or eight months down the line, and I meet these people when I was strong enough in my own self to be able to call them and say, look, I need to be up and have a chat and to apologise to them for borrowing money off them or whatever it may have been and then to be able to pay them back. Um, that would have been a huge relief. Now, that would have brought up a lot of shame as well. So I remember one guy actually I met, I'd give, I owed him money and I remember handing it back to him and it was nice that I was able to do it, but it brought up a lot of shame for me. And for the next week or so, I really, I wasn't in, not that I wasn't in a good place. I just, I wasn't in a good place, but I was really feeling how it was, how it made me feel. I was really feeling the shame around it all okay. that I'd actually got this money off this person and had to pay it back and kind of been avoiding them for years. And yet I was able to ring him and say, look, want to meet up and have a chat, apologise to him, give him back the money. Absolutely 100% the right thing to do, but it was actually probably a bit too soon to actually do it because okay. I probably wasn't strong enough in myself to be able to do it. So it took me a couple of weeks to get over that. But like that was a good thing to try and get over, you know. It did bring up a lot of shame, but at the same time, it was the right thing to do. Face um, up to it, like exactly, yeah. yeah. And that's I've had a lot of those. Um, I suppose um, that's happened to me on a number of occasions where I've met people since that, and it's been all really, really positive. Everyone's been. I've been lucky in that sense. Everyone's been very receptive to me to say, "Jesus, look, thanks a million, fair play to you for trying to get yourself back on track. You didn't have to meet up. You didn't have to do this. Um, it's great to see that you're trying to get yourself back on track." Whereas some people that I went into treatment with or that were in the house when I was there didn't have those experiences. Some people just washed their hands at them and said, don't want to talk to you again. So from my point of view, that's been that's been something that I'm, I suppose I'm very grateful for as well. I'm, just, I'm going to close out by, first of all, I'm going to just thank you again for your honesty, your passion, the rawness within there. Like, one of the reasons I started up this podcast is that I wanted to, I wanted to tap into different lads and sports lifestyles and perspectives and experiences and just try, basically just to share the learnings and, and I think you've, you've done it so eloquently there and, um, and so nicely and I suppose this is the I call this the Real Talks podcast for a reason and I feel very fortunate to have sat down with you and, and had that that meaningful conversation Real Talk whatever you want to call it and it goes back to something that we said earlier on around honesty um, and connecting with people around you and I suppose you are one of the people that I've been very fortunate to get to know if the two of us hadn't been honest with what was going on and sort of and start talking about it we probably never would have met Um and like I always say, and you've touched upon it there too, like good things can can spin at these too. And I think that's probably the, the right note to close out on that you're sitting here in good health. Um, is there going to be challenges in the future? Absolutely. Um, but you've learned a huge amount. And I think anyone listening will have taken a huge amount out of that. You've set the bar pretty high now for next week's guest, but, <laughs> but no pressure. And we'll talk to you soon. So Go thank on. you. Cheers. Thanks, Al. Well, that's it for another week. And I really hope you enjoyed this real talk with Niall McNamee as much as I did. Make sure you don't miss out on any future episodes. 
by heading over to realtalks.ie to subscribe to the show or just search for Real Talks on whatever platform you are listening on today. There you can also find previous episodes with Tipperary's Brendan Marr, Dublin's Kevin McMenamin, Wicklow's John McGrath and Armagh's Jamie Clark. Four fascinating characters who cover topics like resilience, leadership, identity and how to find the right balance between sport and life. If you want to get in touch with any questions or if you have any suggestions for future guests, you can get me on Twitter at AOMTheCat or through Real Talks IRL. And once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Kelly Bradshaw Dalton, for supporting and believing in this show. You can check out their website at kbd.ie for all your property needs, be that buying, selling, renting or managing property. My name is Alan O'Mara and you've been listening to an episode of the Real Talks podcast.